you are listening to Crossword, where cultural clues lead to the truth of the word. My name is Michelle McAloon, your host, and you can find my program and other great Catholic radio programming on archangelradio.com. And I am a Twitter bird, and you can find me at Michelle McAloon One. Today, we are talking about the hottest topic in America right now, and that is the overturning of Roe versus Wade. We have with us Alexandra DeSanctis, who is a co-author of the book entitled Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. She has co-authored this with Ryan T. Anderson, and it is published by Regnery Publishing. Alexandra DeSanctis is a staff writer for National Review and a visiting fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. She was previously a William F. Buckley Fellow in Political Journalism with the National Review Institute and is a graduate of the University of Notre Dame. Welcome, Alexandra. Thanks so much for having me. Ah, It's an honor to have you here, especially this week. Not even a week old of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And what's really remarkable about your book is that you wrote it with uh, Ryan Anderson, knowing that the decision was out there. December 2021 is when it was argued. You knew the decision was out there. And the topics that you talk about are exactly what the justices talk about in the decision. So really great foresight. And your book does a really good job of explaining a lot of the arguments against abortion and a lot of the arguments that the justices used. So it is, it's well worth the read. The reason why it's so good to read is because it helps understand the decision. And I encourage my readers to read the decision. Don't let the media tell you what's in the decision. Read the decision. And that this decision is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. You can go on SCOTUS blog and then get this book. And it really kind of all melts together. All right. So let's go ahead and start, Alexandra. One of the lines that comes out of the decision, it says abortion presents a moral question. The Constitution does not prohibit the citizens of each state from regulating or prohibiting abortion. Roe and Casey arrogated the authority. The court overrules those decisions and returns that authority to the people and the elected representatives. Let's start with the big question here. Why is abortion a profound moral question? Well, it's certainly something that's been debated extensively throughout the course of human history and in the United States context in particular. Um, It's been debated even before Roe v. Wade. And I think that's part of why Roe was so unfortunate. It kind of nipped the abortion debate in the bud, so to speak, before it could get off the ground. You know, abortion was illegal in almost all cases in most states at the time of Roe. But the American people hadn't really had the full-blown abortion debate yet. It was just becoming kind of technologically possible, more societally acceptable among some people to have an abortion. Um, Some states had legalized it here and there. And so the court just kind of swooped in and, and seven justices decided we're going to put this whole debate to rest, right? We're not going to let the country have this controversial, inflammatory debate over when human life begins or, you know, how an unborn child's rights might weigh or stack against a woman's right to control over her own body. We're just going to settle the question here with what they saw as a compromise. So we, we haven't even had really a debate over, over the morality of abortion in any real way because Roe v. Wade tried to answer the question for us. And now we're kind of facing the new 
the new debate, we have to really weigh those moral questions. That's interesting because in 1973, when Roe versus Wade was instituted, 30 states where abortion was illegal. So it definitely was not a majority opinion in 1973. And I would argue today it is not a majority opinion. I know there's a lot of Gallup polls out there and there's a lot of surveys, but it's all how you spin it. There is, I believe, once you see a human person, the science has come along so much that once you see a human person, you really have to work hard to belittle that, to make that not a human person. And the abortionists and the anti-life people have worked very hard, but they can't really get that argument. They can't get there. And that brings up one of the fundamental issues of a human being versus a human person. And that is brought up in the decision and that is brought up in your book. What is the distinction between the two? Yeah, so the, we talk about this quite a bit in our first chapter where we talk about how abortion harms the, the unborn child. The fundamental harm of abortion, right, is killing an unborn human being, an innocent human being. And so we, we make the point that there's some kind of category of unsophisticated abortion supporters who say things like, uh, you know, this is just a clump of cells, or it's a parasite, or a part of the mother, or these kind of unscientific, unbiological arguments, as you were just noting. It's very hard to deny the humanity of the unborn child. This is very obviously, scientifically speaking, a unique, distinct human being. And so more sophisticated defenders of abortion turn to this uh, sort of moral, philosophical, ethical argument, which is, okay, maybe we'll concede this this entity in the womb is a human being, uh, but it's not a moral person. And so they do this in a, there are a number of different ways of advancing this argument. But the, the central idea is, for whatever reason, this human being doesn't have the same moral worth as you or me. And maybe it's because they don't have consciousness. Maybe it's because they, they can't retain memories. Maybe it's because they're smaller. Whatever it might be, there's some kind of set of criteria that are applied to devalue that human being and say, well, for the purposes of our law or the purposes of ethics, this human being is not a moral person and therefore can still be discarded in a, a normal, you know, ethical, upstanding society. And you use Ryan Anderson's son as sort of an example of when his parents found out that he had, they were having a baby and the excitement behind that. And then he became a little person and then he learned how to count. And you kind of look at the timeline of his life to ask the question, at what point was he a moral person? And of course, we come to the agreement, we know this, that he became a moral person the minute of conception. He was a human being, human being in a different form, in different forms. But from the very beginning, he had the heart and soul of a human being. He was a human person, even though he could not contribute directly to society but we know his potential. And we also understand that his moral worth is the dignity of his humanity. And that lasts from that first conception till last breath, that a human being is a human being is a human person. So you can't separate the two. Although I think there's a lot of dualists uh, in the world now that are trying to separate those two, that they try to measure the value of a human being in terms of human worth. And we see that with the destruction of the disabled in the womb. Yeah, no, that's absolutely Correct? right. That's absolutely right. No. But wait a minute, there's a lot of arguments out there and I've heard them and we've heard all the arguments and we've seen the screaming females out in front of, you know, different pregnancy centers 
And I'm sorry, that's who it has been for the most part. Abortion is first and foremost about a matter of female autonomy, correct? Mm -hmm. That's their argument. That's their argument. What's the counter argument to that? We kind of put it as the third argument for abortion in our first chapter, and that is maybe the unborn child is a human being. Maybe he's even a, a moral person, but even so, his rights or you know his his worth is less than the the value, the rights, the worth of his mother. And so, when we place the kind of right to life against her right to bodily autonomy, the woman's right to control her own body and her own future, that outweighs whatever value or worth or rights the unborn child has. And so, this is we kind of get into the the Judith Jarvis Thompson essay and the the violinist analogy, where you know you're you're hooked up to a hypothetical famous violinist who's dependent on you and your organs to survive. Um, and her argument is this is what happens in an abortion, right? It's it's moral, she would argue, to separate yourself from the child that's dependent on you to survive because it's not your your moral obligation or your responsibility to sustain it. And so the way we respond to that is to say, first of all, 99.9% of pregnancies, 99.9% of unborn children come into the world as the result of a free consensual choice between parents, right? So it's not as though women magically wake up pregnant one day uh, through no fault of their own and now suddenly have to be mothers. No, that's not how it works. And so the moment that you exercise your so- so-called reproductive choice has already passed by the time that you're contemplating an abortion. A woman has chosen to reproduce, is a mother, and is now trying to decide whether to kill her child. That's the question before her. And then secondly, parents have particular obligations and duties to their children that they don't even have to strangers. And so there's kind of a compounded way in which a mother and father are responsible for the child they brought into the world. Even though we have a a responsibility not to kill strangers, we have even more of a responsibility to care for our children. The title of your book is Abortion Tearing Us Apart. And that's really a great title because this issue alone has incited us in ways that no other issue has. Gun, gay marriage, I, I mean, every hot button, hot topic issue out there but it, the abortion issue has deformed us in many different ways. And you look at some of those ways in which abortion has had undue influence in our decision making. And you take, you go from basically medical to family to, to male responsibility to the Democratic Party. So let's tackle some of those subjects. How has abortion thwarted our understanding of medicine? Yeah, that's a really important topic. And um, the way we sort of get into it or, or start out our argument in the book is by looking at the way that abortion has affected or, uh, I guess, corrupted American medical organizations. And so we tell the story of how people think of Roe v. Wade and, and legalized abortion as this kind of women's rights crusade. And it was very much in part a, a product of second wave feminism. But actually, some of the biggest lobbyists for legalized abortion were doctors. By no means all doctors. It was a minority of very elite, powerful doctors who, who ran groups like uh, the American College of OBGYNs or the American Medical Association. And they lobbied the Supreme Court, making the argument that doctors had to be able to exercise their medical judgment. And they were afraid, right, at the time, if states criminalized abortion, they didn't punish women who sought abortions, they punished the doctors who performed them. And so a growing number of doctors wanted to be able to perform abortions when they thought it was necessary or helpful or whatever else, and they didn't want to get in trouble for it. And so they were trying to they basically expanded the idea of medical, medically necessary to cover elective abortions and then told the court, we can't function as doctors if we're not able to perform abortions, if kind of the government's getting in the way. Um, so you need to legalize this. 
And that argument was very influential. If you read the opinion in Roe, that's basically where Harry Blackman, the author of the decision, came down. He talks a lot about doctors' rights. He doesn't talk much about women, but he talks a lot about doctors and their medical judgment. And since then, that's really morphed into sort of a segment, an influential segment of our medical system that has essentially pretended for, for 50 years that abortion is medicine or healthcare, that this is necessary, even though we know abortion is never medically necessary. Um, a woman never needs to directly kill her living unborn child for her own health. That doesn't ever happen. And doctors have gotten behind this. And it's, it's created a situation where now we're justifying things like euthanasia, embryonic stem cell research, uh, gender reassignment or gender affirmation, as they would call it, all these things that are contrary to good medicine. But some portion of our doctors have embraced it. You know, what's interesting is these telecommute chemical abortion pills that can now be administered without a doctor. That just to me seems like plain foolish, not good sense, not good medicine and not in the interest or the health of women. No, absolutely not. And this will be the new push of the abortion rights movement as you know, abortion becomes illegal in a number of states. They're going to shut down their clinics and they're going to move to pushing chemical abortion via telemedicine, which is now legal. You know, the, the FDA approved it under the Biden administration. It's now legal. You can have a, a telemedicine consultation with a doctor, have abortion pills shipped to you, and you take them in, in the privacy of your own home. You have no help with uh, you know any side effects, you might have any complications. You're not sure whether to go to the emergency room if you're hemorrhaging. It's, it's a very dangerous situation for women. And unfortunately, abortion rights supporters are all in favor of it. Yeah, that's scary because it's you can only take it up to a certain time, right? So what, 10 weeks, I believe, yeah, what it's, you wrote? So it's permitted up to 10 weeks, but uh, Planned Parenthood even will prescribe it up to 12. So it's already, they do bend the rules already, and I fear they will further that just seems mindless to me, mindless. And one of the things that your book does show is, and I hate to use this word, but how rapacious the Planned Parenthood is. They are a heinous organization, especially they, you know, and I saw some comments this past week. If 3% of their business model is only based on abortions, why are they so upset? And I thought it was very interesting, You, both you and Ryan, account how they come up with that 3%. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. So the idea, this is something Planned Parenthood and its defenders will often say, um, you know, when they're attacked for being the by far the largest abortion provider in our country, just for a little bit of context, they perform upwards of 300,000 abortions every year, which is about half of all officially reported abortions in the U.S. and about a third of the estimated abortions every year. So just enormous number of abortions. Uh, but they say, look, abortion is just 3% of what we do. This is just, we provide so many services for women. We care for, for mil millions of women every year. It's really not all about abortion. But they arrive at this 3% figure essentially by inflating the statistics of what they do. So rather than comparing the number of abortions to the number of patients that they see, uh, they compare the number of abortions to the number of so-called services they provide. And they don't explain exactly what services are, but they, they define it as a discrete clinical interaction. So this could be anything from giving a woman a pregnancy test to an ultrasound to you know handing her birth control pills on her way out the door. All of this it constitutes a service. So if a woman comes in for an abortion and while she's there is also given four other interactions or services while she's in the building, they count that as, you know, 20% of what she did. It was only 20% about abortion, but she was there for an abortion. And so they do this to kind of downplay the importance of abortion in their business model. I tell you, Alexander, what really flummoxes me is how we went from first wave feminism 
where it really was about the identity of the woman, about the identity of mother, about the identity of family, of how women care for families and how they can also work and be career women, to second wave feminine feminism, where children are actually seen as something contra, uh, as almost an enemy to success, to building a better life. How did we get there? It just amazes me. Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I always like to reference the work of my colleague Erica Bakiaki on this because she's done a lot of great scholarship on first wave feminists and how they were pro-life, right? And not only because they believed in the dignity of the unborn child, but because they thought abortion was bad for women, right? They recognized that it actually is not a solution for women to put abortion on their plate too, right? It, telling women that they can you know, walk away from sex in the same way as men by committing an act of lethal violence against their child is actually not pro-woman. That's not feminist. That's not empowering. And yet somewhere along the line, I think a lot of feminists began to believe that that they needed to be like men, right? So I, I think the kind of linchpin to understanding this is that second wave feminists began to define equality as sameness. And so they began to, to understand equality with men as being exactly like men. And so to do that in the realm of sex, especially amidst kind of the sexual revolution that was going on at the same time, that meant being able to participate in sex exactly as men do and participate in the workforce exactly as men do. And that requires completely ignoring or overriding the reality of female biology, which entails pregnancy, childbearing, and, and motherhood. And it's not necessary. You can obviously be a woman without being a mother, but those things are kind of naturally inbred in female biology, the, the capacity to become a mother. And so to, to tell women that it's some kind of feminist victory to sort of shut all that down, to destroy their own child and, and their own body in service of equality is, is deeply destructive. It is deeply destructive. And I tell you, this past week, what is just absolutely, again, just flummoxed me, is the corporations have come out and said, we will pay for you to have an abortion. We will take, you can go to California or Chicago. We will pay for you. We'll pay for your medical expenses, transportation. Of course they will, because it's a lot cheaper than maternity leave. It's a lot cheaper than paying insurance for a woman to go to hospital and have that baby. I just, I can't see how women think this is freedom or good for themselves. And I'm old. I'm an old woman, but I just don't see how young women really continence this and understand this unless they've just been absolutely brainwashed by Planned Parenthood and by the media. So it's, I think it's really interesting. It's really, it's almost sickly ironic in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's very sad. I've spent a lot of time trying to understand kind of where these women are coming from. And, and the best I can do to empathize with it is I think a lot of women are just convinced that this kind of sex on demand lifestyle is fulfilling. And that if men are able to walk away from sex with no consequences, then women need access to abortion to remain equal and, and to be able to participate in that on a, a level playing field. As sad as it is, I really think that's at the root of it. Maybe. And I just, you know what, I just can't believe that about women, that women really believe that. That's, that's to me is just... It's, it's a big lie. It's right? shocking to me. Yeah, yeah it is a big lie. It's a huge lie. It's really thwarted our politics especially the Democratic Party. I remember my family were conservative Democrats at one time, and they left the Democratic Party because of the life issue. I had the opportunity to have lunch with Barack Obama, Senator Barack Obama, and he asked me why I was not, why a woman like me, a modern woman like me, was not a Democrat. And I told him it was the life issue. And he said, well, good people can disagree. Within the next week, as an Illinois senator, he's trying to pass 
partial birth abortion legislation. I'm sorry, good people don't disagree on something like that. That is not, I mean, that's not even the same ballpark at that point. What has abortion done to our politics? Yeah, it's really eviscerated our politics. And I think a big part of that is because of kind of what I was mentioning earlier and how the court took this out of the democratic process and who knows how the debate would have gone otherwise. But I think everything was made especially toxic by the fact that we we all deeply disagreed as a, a polity, but couldn't actually do much about it because it had just been you know taken up by the court and, and no one really had any say after that point. The only way to change it was to change the court, which of course is not easily done. But I think, yeah, your mention of the democratic party is right on. And that's a big part of what we talk about in our chapter on politics, just how there used to be pro-life Democrats and especially pro-life Catholic Democrats, because the Democratic Party used to be the party of the little guy. And who is the littlest guy among us, right? The unborn child. And slowly, I guess, these politicians just began to see a political advantage in becoming, you know, the party of Planned Parenthood. Um, There's certainly a monetary advantage these days in being pro-abortion. There's a lot of fear, I think, among Democratic politicians about crossing the Planned Parenthoods and NARALs of the world, because you'll be labeled anti-woman, anti-choice, and that's a death blow if you're a Democrat or a Republican, for that matter, it can be pretty damaging. Right, sure. Um, But I think there's a a political advantage now for them. And I wonder if Roe having been overturned doesn't change the calculus a bit and and kind of loosen up space for pro-life Democrats to to gain more of a footing uh, the way they once had. I really wonder that myself. I believe that there may be a space opening up, and I could see that happening in states like Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, the very conservative southeastern states where the Democratic Party has not had a hold, I do see possibly some a crack in that, maybe even in Florida, an opening up of it. This decision last week, where do you think the future of it lies? What do you think the impact in the future of abortion politics is as we go forward? Yeah, that's a, certainly one of the big questions people are wrestling with. I think Democrats are convinced that the court having overturned Roe is going to play in their political favor. And you mentioned earlier, a lot of these polls going around about Americans not wanting to see Roe overturned. But the truth is, a lot of Americans don't know what Roe actually did. You know, I've been looking at abortion polls now for about six, seven years covering this topic. And it's very complicated. The truth about what Americans think about abortion is very, very complicated. And I think if we were to simplify it at all, the, the basic way you could put it is most Americans are not fans of abortion on demand until birth, which is the stance of the Democratic Party. But at the same time, it's not as though all Americans or most Americans want all abortion to be illegal. And I think there's a kind of a majority coalition that favors limiting abortion to, you know, cases of rape, incest, if the mother's life is at risk, or the first trimester, you know, first 12 weeks of pregnancy. Um, That's certainly not where I come down. And we have to keep changing hearts and minds. But that coalition is not the Democratic coalition, right? That's not where the National Democratic Party is on the issue. And so I think our politics is going to end up, it'll be a debate state by state over how far exactly Americans are willing to go. And we have a real opening, I think, as pro-lifers to educate people about 12 weeks actually isn't any different from 15 or one week, right? It's always the same human being. And so while we might always have exceptions for situations where a woman might die, of course, you know, she should be able to get treatment for an ectopic pregnancy, for example, that's not an abortion. And so we have to be able to educate about things like that. Uh, And I think, you know, I I have hope we'll be able to win over more people in that coalition to our, our point of view. I think so. And I tell you, one of the real heartening things that we've seen in the last couple of years is the young people joining the pro-life movement. And it is definitely a pro-life generation from what I have seen, young Catholic and young Christian men and women 
actually taking a stance against this. And I think they know because I think they know how poisonous this is, not only to them as individuals, to families, but also to our society. So I, I actually see great hope in the future as states start to wrestle with this question, a question where it should have always been and and now it is here to stay. So we got a lot of work ahead of us, but I think we can win over hearts and minds and actually and allow people to be heard on this such important issue. So Alexander, I really appreciate the time <laughs> and your flexibility. I like your work. I like your columns. Where Do you have a webpage or a website? I don't, but my work can be found at nationalreview.com for the most part. It's where I do most of my writing. Okay, great. All right. And so we have been speaking with Alexandra DeSanctis, author of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. And she actually co-authored this with Ryan T. Anderson. And it is published by Regnery, one of our favorite publishers. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Great being with you. You've been listening to Crossword, where cultural clues lead to the truth of the word. My name is Michelle Macklin, your host, and you can find my program and other great Catholic radio programming on archangelradio.com. And I am a Twitter bird and I'm fluttering around at Michelle Macklin 1. Thank you. God bless.